when Dave walked away from the show, did you get a call out of the blue? Like, how did that shake out? I got a phone call from him literally the day after. I don't think he ever really wanted to do season three or four, but he agreed to it. I mean, but, um, you know, man, he's my friend. Yeah. And so what I take away from that moment in time is I wish that everyone could have been a better friend to Dave. Mm. Like my job was to be there to support my friend and I wasn't gonna leave my friend's side. That's it. What's up guys, welcome back to episode number 53. Thank you so much for coming back and tuning in. This week we have on Corey Smith, longtime veteran OG hip hop manager. He's managing guy to the careers of De La Soul, Most Def, Talib Kweli, Lil John. Back in the day, he was at a De La Soul show and this guy taps him on the shoulder asking him if he could watch the show side stage and he would go on to form a longtime friendship and business partnership with this person. You know this person as Dave Chappelle. The clip you heard at the beginning of the episode was Corey describing the conversation he was having with Dave a day after Dave decided to leave the Chappelle show. We get into that conversation and a whole lot more. Such a fun episode. I know you guys are gonna get a lot out of this. Here we go. Welcome everybody to Connection is Magic. I'm your host, Samson Schulman, a former music executive turned podcaster and coach. In a world obsessed with the highlight reel and keeping our difficulties hidden behind the curtain, we end up feeling lonely and isolated and opportunities for human connection are missed. On this podcast, we dive deep with our guests and get them to share those dreaded, unfiltered pieces. We learn how to make lemonade out of life's lemons and realize adversity isn't sent to break us, but rather shape us into the greatest versions of ourselves. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Now let's begin our journey back home to connection. How are you, Mr. Smith? I'm blessed, man. I'm blessed. I can't complain. I love it, man. I was doing a little research on you. Oh, so what did your research give you? I liked your speech at, uh, at Morehouse. That was a uh, very unique scenario because I went to Morehouse and Crown Forum, it was like the thing at yeah. school. And so when I got the invitation to speak at Crown Forum, I, one, didn't believe that I was supposedly that type of guy. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it was, it was one of those things where I was like, really? Like me? And I got to speak to, I felt like a version of myself, you know, there. And so I was giving them a lot of insight on what my path had been and how I'm sure that there's someone in that audience that's traveling a similar path or could use the information that I was suggesting or stating that could be beneficial because I don't know that everyone believed in my idea that I was going to do this thing. Yeah. And I can see why people could be skeptical about it, you know, and I can see why, oh, you're going to be a successful person in the music industry. And this is a conversation that I'm having with people in 1991, 1992, 19. It's like, I could, I could see why it seemed far-fetched because who, no one, you know, I don't think a lot of people knew people who were able to do that. And I, I think like, purpose to speaking to them also was just to tell them to support each other. We need each other more than we even recognize. We live sometimes in a very competitive, people feel, you know, competitive and competition. And I feel like everything you were just saying is like, you need to unite and like help each other and and not worry about the next man advancing Mm -hmm. beyond you, that type of thing. Because I feel like that can happen in today's climate where people are like, looking at the amount of followers, like say you're a new artist, you're looking at somebody else's followers, you know what I mean? 
and it turns it more into a competition than people helping each other. This is what I'll say. I think competition is healthy. Mm. You know, there's no part of me that doesn't think competition is healthy, but I know that there's something to be said about running your own race. And when you're competing with people, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily running your race. There's this story about the horse Secretariat. Secretariat ran the Triple Crown or whatever of horse races. The first two races, I think she won each race by two lengths, right? Yeah. But the third race, Secretariat won by 31 lengths, night and day from- Damn. One and a half to two to thirty. So what do they attribute? What do they attribute that to? You they know? say this, and this is what I'm. This is the reason I'm saying this because it's a very much about competition and running your own race. One of my mentors told me the story. I knew nothing about it. The guy's name is Michael Klein. Michael Klein. Uh, he used to own the San Diego Chargers, and he he gave me this gem. He said that the jockey said at this race he just let the horse run. He said the previous races he was keeping pace. Hmm. waiting to break three. In the third race, he just let the horse run from the gate. That's never tight. paced at all. And so at that moment, you're realizing that success is in you. Just run your race. It's your race. Like the beauty of it all is running your race. It's not necessarily competing against the man next to you. And For that's sure. what I've realized in life. That's yeah, beautiful, my, man. It's my, it's my race to run. And I, I don't look at this industry or any of the industries that I've been blessed to be in and necessarily say I'm trying to keep mark with what they're doing in the industry itself. I have tried to place marks in my life where I want to have a, uh, a reputation that is of a gold standard, like a Coca-Cola or, you know, or, or Apple or so-and-so, where these companies are really functioning mm. and delivering product to the market in a stellar way from what I can see. There is something consistently happening that people are buying into and continuing to buy into. I'm all about that, Corey. I'm all about that. But but I don't want to move on too fast from the point you were just making because you were just we we're just going somewhere dope right there. So like this podcast, I don't know if you know this or not, is all about um, people kind of on the come up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always find that super interesting. We all love the underdog story. Am I right? And yeah, I yeah. feel like what doesn't what doesn't help the underdog story is when people keep their hardships and uh, challenges on their way to breaking through a secret. They try to sanitize it like, man, that shit's messy. So one of the greatest places to start in these interviews is like, yo, you, you've accomplished so much in your career. Let's throw it back to when Corey had to struggle a bit and hit closed doors, you know, instead of so many open doors, probably right now it's easier. I don't want to come across arrogant. It's, it seems easier. I make it seem easy, mm. but it's all still hard. You see what I'm saying? Like it's mm. brain capacity. It's, it's, it's perseverance. Like it, that part does not go away. So don't ever get it twisted. And I'm going to address the, 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 the question for real, but please make sure your listeners know you will, will always be challenged and you will always have to persevere. And you always have to plan. You know, you always have to be persistent. These things will, will never go away. No, no matter, matter what how, level of success no, one reaches, no. right? There's always something new. There's always, you, you challenge yourself. That's why you're doing it. So you have to continue to push yourself. Just like if you wake up and want to run a race or you want to wake up and jog, you want to wake up and go to the gym. This is perseverance. You have to do it. Because I think part of human nature, would, if you didn't have that in you, you, you just chill. Why would you, right? So 
um, there's always a challenge, at least for me. I can only speak, I can speak to how I function. The beginning stages, there's, there's different versions of this start. I think the earliest version of the start for me is high school. My friend Ian was a rapper and we had a crew and he had a deal that was put on the table. I think we had two deals that got put on the table. We met a, a lawyer named Alex Hartnett and I was traveling back and forth to Alex Hartnett's office as a high school kid trying to figure out how to close this deal, if we should take it. And that was like my first thing, like, oh, okay, here's a, here's an opportunity to be. And I was, and mind you, I was the dancer in the group. I wasn't the, I wasn't a manager. Ian and I had a rapport where he was willing to show me the agreement. We were reading the agreements together. We were looking up terms like, you know, so that was the start. And then the door, like you said, the door closed because it wasn't the right agreement. So that was the first like, no. And then when I came to college, my freshman year, I, uh, I said I was going to do a production company. That wasn't successful. You know, it wasn't a successful production company. I think just novice mistakes made along the way with that one. And then by the time I finally got to the Rowdy Records stage of me trying to do this, the first real door that closed on me was after the group that I was successfully managing was a group called Y'all So Stupid. They were signed to, to Rowdy Arista, got dropped. I wanted so badly to get this other group signed and it just wasn't working for a while. You know and, what's um, interesting about them getting dropped though, I wanna say, I heard you share that you, as a dancer, you realize you could get injured and like the whole ride could be over. Like you mm -hmm. shared that, right? And I'm thinking, I used to manage artists, man. And I used to think like an artist that you're managing could go off the deep end, man. They could decide they go, they, they could decide to give it all up. Am I right? Yeah. And so I felt yeah. like there's some similar energy there. Yeah, yeah, because I had decided at that moment, I had, you know, I had some money to my name, but but quickly the money had was mismanaged on my part, and I didn't really um, have much more income. Yeah. And I needed income. Did the self-doubt creep in at all? Like, what were those emotions like, you know, when this thing was coming undone? The first thing was shock. And I was too young to really understand how to get them another deal. I couldn't figure that out off the rip. And I think there was turmoil within the group. And I was trying to figure out if I should still be in that in, their, in the business that they were in because yeah. of some of the things that had happened. And at a young age, I had to make a, a decision about life and where things were going. And then I wasn't, I don't, I don't know if I, if I was so equipped for that. Once again, I started a production company. It was called XAC and it stood for Xavier and Corey. It was, it was, and I used to call it Zach, like XAC being Zach. It was Zach yeah. Inc. I had Blacksmith Management and I had Zach Inc. Those were my two companies at the time. Again, this is super early, Corey, right? So you weren't generating revenue for these things yet, right? I had generated some revenue. And when I first started making management, you also stupid. I probably had made $30,000, off of that. Okay. So you were just coasting with that, but then, with that but then, money. But, yeah. then that, but that money went away. When I signed the production deal with a group, which we call the Roots at the time, but then they changed the name to Metaphor. And I signed a kid named DJ Kizzy Rock. And that was my, the two artists signed to my production deal, Tommy Boy. I didn't have overhead. I didn't have any other income. So the deal was structured where the artist got the advance. We got our percentage of the advance. And then I was splitting that with my partner. We were investing back into the business, building studios, stuff like that. So there was no real money. And then I had looked around and I think I had like three to $5,000 left to my name. I was living at Ford Factory Apartments in Atlanta. And, 
you know, three to five thousand dollars, not knowing where your next check was going to be coming. I went and got a job. Nine to fiver, you're saying, right? A little, a little bit slicker. Okay. I got a job at a, I got a job at a skate shop. Okay. Okay. At skate Escape. I got a job at Skate Escape in Atlanta, Georgia, by Piedmont Park. Okay. And was that done for? That was done like. Uh, there was, there was, there was, there was some strategically, strategy. strategically, yeah. yeah. It was some strategy there because it was off the music path. And I didn't want to be a guy that was like, I have to work here. And I needed, I needed the freedom that working at a skate shop, putting decks together, selling rollerblades and renting roller skates with, with renting rollerblades to the park could, could afford. Totally. Yeah. I, could, I, could, I could kind of generate, I could make my own schedule. And I cut myself a deal with them where I was probably one of the only people that were getting a percentage of the skates that I sold. Went in and I hustled that. I was like, that's a good hustle, Corey. Right. Yeah, hustled that. Little John had got a job there and Baby had a job there too. So me, Little John, Baby all worked at Skate Escape. You, were, you actually worked at the skate shop with Little John? That's pretty wild, man. I've, I've known Little John since I was 17. Since my freshman year of college, I've known John. That's crazy, I to, man. And, 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 I, and I managed John at one point in my life too. My artist, Soup, had been working there and hanging out with this kid, Ronnie. And Soup was like, and I was talking to Soup because we're, once again, these kids are only like two, three years younger than me. So we're all living life in a very Atlanta 90s way. You know what I mean? Yeah. We all hang out. We're like, it's just, but you know, like this is my manager. Y'all were yeah, your manager and you could be interchangeable yeah. as far as looks go at that moment. I needed to make a change. And Soup was just like, yo, why don't you come work over here? It'd be easy. Like, and we could hang out and we could... <laughs> He wanted to just hang out with me. It was like, we could hang out. We'd be selling skates. It'd be so cool. And, and like, and I was like, ah, I wasn't sure. But then I went and they told me no. They told me no. Like, they're like, your resident, like, you're too qualified for this job. And I said to them that, hey, if you, I asked them, I said, how much do you make selling skates at any, you know, any given day? What's a good day? And they told me a number. And I said, if you let me work here, I'll sell that amount at least. And I sold more than that. It allowed me for nine months, I think I was there for nine months, to be able to not worry about food and things like that. And then I had extra money coming in to take care of like, and I could budget accordingly. And my diet for that nine months became corn nuts, pizza, and Snapple. And like, we're not talking I, about like quality mom and pop pizza. We're talking about like, you know, Little Caesars or something like that. Just like really rough in it, right? Me Mellow Mushroom. <laughs> Mellow, Mellow Mushroom. mushroom. Was a, Mellow Mushroom was the pizza spot in Atlanta that we were getting pizza. Shout out and to Mellow Mushroom. <laughs> shout out to Mellow Mushroom. Shout out to Skate Escape. <laughs> shout out to Soup. It, it gave me enough of a break to figure some things out financially. And then eventually I went back to New York. It was expensive then, I assume, right? I mean, it's a very expensive place now, but it's always been expensive, right? Yeah, but New Yorkers don't know expensive. Just like New Yorkers don't realize that there's so much space other places. And that like, makes sense. Because like, like a fish it's, not knowing it's in water, you're just, you're just yeah, there. You don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, don't, you don't realize it until you actually move into some other place or you're trying to purchase something somewhere else. You're like, wow, like yeah. I can get all this for this. I mean, like- You know what's funny about New Yorkers, bro? I got to tell you, which is fun. It's like, y'all are like, you're caring people. Like, I feel like there's a lot of good people in New York, but it's funny, like it's with an edge. And what I mean by that is I remember being in New York and like this dude held the door open for me. And like, I didn't walk through the door fast enough. And he yelled at me. He's like, come on, come on. Like he's doing me a nice favor, but then he's yelling at me at the same time. So just a funny yeah. New York story. We're moving. New Yorkers don't know the idea of sitting still too much. Not a real New Yorker. And New Yorkers don't live in a space of let me look around. I can tell you that we don't look up much. 
I heard yeah. you in an interview talk about, you know, you guys have the yonder case at some of the some of the shows you guys were doing, put the phone away and be in the moment. You're an advocate for being in the moment, but like New Yorkers aren't in the moment a lot too, right? Because you're just trying to get from one thing to the next. So how do you balance that, that is, out? We are there. We spend more time transitioning through moments. Okay. But we, but we, we, we are, we are in moments, but um, we may not bask at the beauty of the empire state building. We may not bask at the beauty of our, of the architecture around. We may not look at the Statue of Liberty on a regular basis, but for the most part, when you're born there, you've done it, you've seen it, you've taken it in and it's part of your, your psyche. I don't bask in, oh man, like these jeans are so good because I already have them. You see what I'm saying? Like the, the concrete jungle itself are, is our clothing. It's us. Oof. Like we, there's no that's, other place. That's, that's dope. Yeah, it is. It's, it's in our DNA. Trust me, because there's no other place where you walk the way we walk, you travel the way we travel, we're, we're intertwined. That's why it's the, one of the best metro systems. You see what I'm saying? It's one of the best cities in the world where you can get anything. There's nothing you cannot get in New York City. Yeah. There's not a person in the street that can't tell you something about something you're looking for. You can stop someone in New York City on a dime and at least one out of the five is going to be able to tell you exactly where to get what you're looking for. And you don't have that in a lot of other places. Hell like that. no. And mind you, I've been in L.A. for six going to seven years, right, this October. And I'll say that it's um, the lifestyle that I live here is I appreciate way different. I'm... I'm able to, I appreciate the sun mm. in ways that I didn't appreciate in New York. I appreciate the fact that I don't have to sludge through winter. Yeah, you know, for sure. I really do appreciate that. I appreciate the ability to go take a drive, you know, yeah. up and up to PCH or something. You know what I mean? Like, but you missed the, you missed that, that, you know, that hustle thing that you were just describing about New York. Do you, you miss that at all here? Once again, yeah. the hustle's on me. I hustle mm. here I hustle here and, and I, I honestly, I think I hustle circles around a lot of people here. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But to use a cliche and I'm, once again, it is a cliche. So people don't take offense to it, but people are known to say here pre pre COVID, you know, Oh, let's have lunch. Oh, let's go have a coffee. Let's just, I, I don't waste my time with half of that stuff. Like what, like, let's, what are we doing? Let's, are we, are we doing business? Or are we not? Like, right, really... right, 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 right. All right. So I heard a New Yorker tell me that people here have a meeting about having a meeting. They don't Absolutely. just have the meeting. Yeah, yeah, you They're agree with that. Okay, okay. One hundred percent. Yeah. Like the, all these sit downs for, it's like it's a lot of wasted time. Like I'm cutting yeah. to the chase. Like what are we? Oh, we trying to get this cracking because I can hang out with you after that. We can yeah. sit and have some drinks. We can sit like, but I want to know like I cut to it. Like I'm, I'm rapid for deals. I don't give myself the privilege or ability to not move quickly because I don't want to forget something. So I've trained myself. So if you're like, hey man, we should talk about, you know, getting a new microphone. I'm like, cool. And I'm going to immediately pick up my phone and start calling the microphone people. You see what I'm I saying? I'm calling, I'm calling sure immediately, <laughs> at least to leave a message yeah. with, with Corey Lutz so that he knows to at least call me back so that I'm like, so I tossed it somewhere where at least it can snap Ooh. back in the midst of me working. You got the ball out of your court. You're going to at least do that. The ball will not be in your but court. It yeah. could still be in my court to have to throw again, but at yeah. least I, I shot it out there. Yeah. And the, the law of averages is probably Corey Lutz is going to hit me. And I'm using Corey Lutz for sure, which is going to be like, why is he using my name? Thing? <laughs> but, but like, he's going to call me back at least to be like, Hey, you called me you see what yeah. I'm saying? because I have enough of rapport. My 30 plus years in this game, 
most people, at least I would say high 95% are going to know I'm not calling to shoot the shit. I'm calling like with, with purpose. Now, yeah. you said something else, Corey, about, you know, you called yourself like you felt like Forrest Gump at times because, you, you know, you found yourself in the right time at like the right place. I thought that was a very interesting comment. You started out in music and then you found your way into, co- into the comedy space or the film space eventually when you met Dave Chappelle. Let's just talk about, you know, that chance encounter. Was it a chance encounter? Like, sticking with the Forrest Gump theme? 100%. Everything has been that. Um, There's no part of my life that has not been a chance encounter Mm. because I legitimately was in Ohio at Kenyon College doing a concert with De La Soul, who I managed at the time, and Kwali, who I managed at the time. And um, so Kwali and De La had a show. And I would do that thing where, like, if... A college or someone was booking Dela, I would either put most and quiet on the as an opening slot because I knew there was a budget there. Part that of that makes hustle. sense, yeah. Or if someone didn't have enough money to pay for Dela and it was still a decent amount, I would say, Hey, well, I got another group or I got another artist that you could, you know, that you could have. Uh, easy peasy, yeah. I mean, you can't plan for it because I used to stand and monitor world. Well, I still do for a lot of shows, but I, I usually now I'm at my front of house because I back then. We only travel with front of house engineers. Mm-hmm. So that's the person that sits at the front of the boards, making sure yeah. what the audience hears yep. is good. But the person on the side of the stage has to make sure what the artist is hearing is a certain way. And we didn't travel with that guy. So my job used to be on tour for the first three songs after, you know, when the artist gets on stage, we would do sound check. But the first three songs, Maceo from Daylight, and I had signals that to get the sound right on stage because sound guys would mix up stuff and it would never, it never snapped back or they didn't have digital boards and it wouldn't like, it wasn't always dialed in. So I would work on highs. Most of the time and, shit would go wrong basically. Right. And you learned you got to correct it. So I spent a lot of time on the side of the stage. And so I'm standing on the side of the stage at that moment. And Dave taps me on my shoulder and asked if he could watch the show from the side of the stage. To me, he was at you from Robin Hood Men and Titans. That's yeah. what I knew. Yeah. And so at that point, I was like, sure, you know, and um, from that moment, he watched the show. He enjoyed the show. And then later on, I think we exchanged numbers after the show. He asked what we were doing. And we decided to go to this kid's house on campus. And he had like a kegger. He had a keg party. And so at this kid's keg party was De La Soul, Kwali and Dave Chappelle. We all hung out. Dave called me like, where you at? I gave him the address. And I was in the kitchen sitting on this kid's counter drinking a beer like in a solo cup and Dave walked in and then we all just started hanging, talking shit, having a good time. And for that was the introduction of him and my crew. Mm. And then from that point we became friends and we stayed in touch, but then we really became intertwined. Like the ball that has never been unraveled was outside of electric lady where he was on his way to the comedy cellar. And I was standing outside electric lady. And that day we spent a full day together. It was like him coming into the studio, meeting the roots and common and D'Angelo and all these kids that were at the studio that time working. Eric, I think everyone's at the studio just working on projects at Electric Lady, Most and Quad and High Tech was there. And then, you know, like later on that afternoon or that evening, I went with him, left our studio session. The, everyone, self, everyone else kept recording, left our studio session, went with him around the corner, up the block, make a right around the corner, went to the comedy cellar, which was like two or three blocks over walked in and the first person that I saw there was Jerry Seinfeld 
it, which he knew. And he was like, what's up, Jerry? And I was just like, yo, this is sitting to the left at a table. And it was just like, you know, it was, it was a, it was a awakening, you know, of a world. And then like, it was an introduction to a world that I had knew, I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about comedy on that level. I've watched some comedy specials. I listened to some comedy albums, but um, you know, if it wasn't Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor, I didn't know comedians like that. I knew them to be in movies, but I didn't watch stand up like that. When you spent that evening there with Dave, you watched him go on stage, I assume, you know, he did his mm-hmm. thing. Were you just sold on the comedy world and in, in a new way post that night? No, I wasn't sold on the comedy world. If anything, I was confused at how these guys were making any money. That's an honest answer. <laughs> yeah. Because my brain is so wired to business and my, my brain was wired to touring and uh, the venues and the sizes of the venues that I had my artists playing. And I looked at this spot as where he was playing in my mind because I didn't understand it yet, but I understand it now, you know, yeah. fully. That was his studio. That's not his performance venue. It's his place where he's working out his set. I'm looking at it as this is where comedians perform because I'm calculating how much could each person be paying? Like, you know, it just didn't. didn't So can I use the analogy, Corey, like an artist or a comedian taking their material to these little places is almost like the plane getting checked while it's on the ground and it's not in the air. Like you want to know that your routine and your set works before you're taking it to bigger stages. So you don't, you don't bomb on bigger stages. Is that it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they're small venues, but they're, they're very, very, very important to the craft. The specials you see have been tried out in smaller markets into smaller people or even big markets and smaller audiences. It's just a thing. To answer the question, my initial response was, it was cool looking at these people go on stage and I was, I, I found a lot of this shit funny. I was just like, oh my God, like just watching some of these people, I was just like, their ability to riff, you know, was great. I learned a lot very quickly and I became very much entrenched in learning who was who and what was what. But more so, I was blessed to have a friendship with someone who saw my talent, who believed in me in a way that I didn't necessarily think of myself. So let's talk about that. When did it shift then to, you know, you guys, you guys made it a little more official than just the friendship. You started helping them out on business mm-hmm. stuff. It was a phone call. It was a phone call. Then I think we met in person. Is about we're going to do a TV show, and you know, and Dave had explained to me what my role was going to be. You would basically be a producer, right? Yeah, I was going to book all the t- the, the the music acts for the show and help book talent. I heard you say that no big artists would want to come on, like you know the Christina Aguilera's. weren't you guys trying to get that at first? So Neil and Dave were running the show. Neil the Brennan, show. for those that don't Neil know, Brennan. they would come back, and um, we all had our task and our jobs. And my job was, hey, who's going to be our music guest? Can you reach out to Meth and Red to do this segment? And so I'm trying to get these answers back. Dave is my friend, and like we have such a genuinely pure friendship. I'd never looked at it as a business partnership until later. I'm like, okay, or but it's like, here's my friend asking me to do something. That's really what how I looked at it. And I don't believe in failing my friend. I remember one meeting, they said they wanted two big, very big <laughs> yeah, artists that yeah. they wanted. So their office is on 56th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. And so my office is on 56th Street behind Carnegie Hall between 5th and 6th. So I would leave there walk up the block and I would start making phone calls along the way. And I'm calling people's publicists because everyone's like, that's the way to go. Publicists are going to put them on. And 
I'm getting these, I'll get back to you or these mm, not really sure. Like, can you explain the show to me more? Like no one's getting that this guy is about to have this show. It's like, it's the Chappelle show. And then Dave was like, our pitch should be, tell the artist, it's not about their single. What about the song that they always wanted to do that the label really wasn't supporting? What about a B-side? Let's have those songs be our songs for our show. I was all in with that idea. And I'm like, this is great but I'm getting no's. I'm getting flat out no's or I'm getting, I'll get back to you and it's just not working. By the second or third time I'm showing up in the meeting without any real updates, I'm looking like the loser of the crew at this point. <laughs> There's no real updates. Like, I'm like, no one's saying yes. Dave pulled me to the side and he was like, yo, let's just book our crew. Book your friends, book the people we know. And I remember asking him specifically, I was like, are they going to be okay with this? He was just like, yeah, man, it's my show. You know what I mean? But once again, I'm new to this concept. We're at Comedy Central. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking through this thing. And the first act that we did was most. We did most up in Harlem by my old brownstone. It was a game changer. Did you guys feel that what you were doing was kind of groundbreaking? Because I was watching that show at the time. I'm like, man, this feels groundbreaking breaking these artists that they're having come on. The music was such a key part of the whole vibe of the show. We were beyond groundbreaking because when you think about that episode with most carpool karaoke, I don't care what anyone says. That's what we did. That look that they have is Dave in the car with most. We were moving culture. And I did De La, then Quad, then I did Black Star, then I did Dead Press. And, and it just all started flowing because it was like, here are my friends. I managed literally the first four acts that we did. So my first four shows, I booked myself. I'm calling myself. Yeah, we're good. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like hey, do you want, you want your artists in the show? Yeah, yeah, I'll take what time. You know what I mean? Like, it was like literally one thing. But afterwards, I had tipped it. It's like, you know, when you make your first shot playing basketball, you score your first touchdown. You, you make that for like, it's these things, they kind of teach you something or if you're boxing and you get hit for the first time, you know what I mean? And you get back up. So then I understood what I was dealing with. I understood what, how great this thing was that we were doing and that I now had a lot more belief in myself to say, no, I know what this is and I know who needs to be here versus looking at these people who had no clue what it should be and even trying to chase down things that they wanted. Beautiful story. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a perfect segue to some place I, I like to go in all these episodes is how do you handle people? You know, once you've cracked through, everybody was not believed at one point, Corey, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like people were slept on. Like, do you, did y'all hold any kind of, you know, did you feel some type of way after the shit started to work on the people that doubted or the people that slept on y'all? I don't have animosity. It's not who I am. Right. Um, I look at every scenario and say that it's for me and whatever I'm supposed to learn from it, please, you know, God willing, I do learn from it. And if not, I'm sure the challenge will come back in another form for me to figure out what this what I need to figure out. But you're a no, human, too. But, I feel but, like but, it's wait, 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 a wait, human. Wait, Go ahead. <laughs> but I cannot stand the fact that people ask for you to do something, but then wants you to prove yourself to. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I, I don't like the doubters of the creative. Like you can't do what I do in the sense of being the creative I am. Your job is to finance the creative. And that's where the doubts, the doubters live usually. And my job has always been to protect the creatives. Yes, I'm a creative in my, in, in my own right. I'm not as, 
I'm a different type of creative than a Dave. I don't have his creative talents. You know what I'm saying? But my creative talents live in a certain space, right? Completely. But, yeah. And so what I've always learned when it comes to any of the clients that I work with, I will say that if I can't do what they're doing, then I need to follow their lead to a large degree. I can find ways to monetize. I think one of my superpowers is being able to see true art, understand commerce and find the marriage. What I can't stand is the people who live on commerce talking about what art needs to be. Stop it. Like that's the issue. That's where the, that's where I have an issue. So when the show is being sold and people pretend like they know something and I'm like, you don't know it. I, I hate the fact that we have to have meetings with people who are not the audience that you're trying to sell something to. And these people are pretending that they get it or don't get it. It's just like, just move out the way. Never take criticism from people who you wouldn't go to for advice. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, and these people I wouldn't go to for advice. Um, they just happen to be the, um, the gatekeepers for the distribution chains in which we wanted to activate. And it's not a disrespect to them. But, you know, I feel like the guard's changing a lot. And I feel like there's a lot more younger people who actually do see things different. But people doubted Block Party. I, I've never, I remember being in numerous meetings for people doubting if we were going to be able to get it done. You know, I cut my teeth in film with Block Party. It was my first time doing it. I, I had to take the lumps. I had to take some of this, the, this, the, the bumps and bruises that it comes with me not knowing. But there's tons of people who got credit on those projects who didn't do anything. In the trenches, Dave, Michelle Gondry, myself, Julie Fong. Hmm. That's it. That, that's hmm. in the trenches. That, that's, that's the film. And, you know, there are people who, I mean, literally who were like, this isn't going to happen or your guy's not going to be able to get all these people here. I didn't have a contingency day. I had one day to get that film done. And Damn. It was like, if it rained that day, which it did, and if it snowed that day, which it didn't, you know, if the, if, if, you know, the block, you know, had a, a, a earthquake on it, like we couldn't shift a day. Like if the money was being spent that day and that's what we had and it had to work. And, you know, we were in God's favor so, and it played out, but, but it was hard work. Like I, I had not busted my ass that hard until that moment. Like, cause it was such a, a condensed period of time to pull it all together. And it was a very unique thing galvanizing a group of people and their management teams in one direction. And, but it was, it was a success. And I think my, my, my peers and, you know, on the management side and on the production side, and I think the artists who I am, and still to this day, um, so blessed to be friends with and, you know, to work with for their, for them, you know, lending themselves to something that, you know, was a cultural phenomenon. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was an amazing, uh, amazing piece you guys did there. I didn't realize mm -hmm. like everything being on the wire like that though, so much is, is what you just yeah. said, where you had to make it work. The lawyers, man, yeah. the lawyers, it's always the lawyers, yo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta have the, you gotta have the suits on your side, Corey. But, but, um, See, I don't believe I, don't even, I won't even do that to people because somebody called me a suit one time, like like two weeks ago. Someone called me a suit, and I wasn't really feeling that statement. When I was like, "Yo, what do you mean?" Like, like I was gonna have to take it back to eighth grade. Like, Yo, man, bro, step outside. gloves are coming off right now. Yeah, like don't but, say that. <laughs> there's another piece there which comes next. I feel like when Dave walked away from the show, did you get a call out of the blue, like? How did that shake out? You know, were you caught off guard or did you have a discussion before 
that happened? No discussion before, but um, I got a phone call from him literally the day after. You know, we talked like the next day. Um, and we had a very private conversation about what was going on. And, you know, I had inklings to that. It, it, in my mind, I feel like we were pushed into that scenario. I don't think he ever really wanted to do season three or four, but he agreed to it. I mean, but, um, you know, man, he's my friend. Yeah. And so what, what, what I take away from that moment in time is I wish that everyone could have been a better friend to Dave. Mm. Like my job was to be there to support my friend and I wasn't going to leave my friend's side. That's it. There's nothing else to be said or discussed at that manner. Hook or crook, I'm in with you. And I hate to use this analogy because it's going to sound a little like Neanderthal-esque, but it's like, if my friends are in a fight, I'm not necessarily walking around asking the question. I'm like, okay, we're fighting. And then I'll ask about the fight later. That's just how I was raised. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not like, hey, what's going on? Like, obviously something's happening that, and I'm on this team. You see what I'm saying? So I can't stand and watch this. You see what I'm saying? I got to participate and figure out what it was later. You see what I'm saying? Like, and so I didn't, I don't care about Comedy Central. Like, no, it's Dave. Like, I'm like, so what are we doing? Okay, cool. Because I'm here with him. You know what I'm saying? He brought me here. Like, it ain't about me. You know For what sure. I mean? And, you know, one thing he told me, which was a, was a which also made me see my life in another way. And he said, you know, and I'll, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because so, on purpose, okay? But the thing was that I had another job outside of that job. See, I was, I was you know, I had my own company. I was managing artists in the music space and making a living. That wasn't that. your sole thing. Right? So when Chappelle's show went away, my bank account had less that money in it, but it, it did, that wasn't the thing that was filling my bank account. You see what I'm saying? So I didn't have that type of knee jerk reaction. Like, like, oh, like it's over. Like, what, like, what do we do? Like, you know what I'm saying? So I never pressured him, yeah. which I think was been, was beneficial to our relationship across the board. I was never about, Hey, so what are we doing next? It just, it, I was back to hanging out with my friend. That's such a great point, Corey. Cause I think about, you know, I watched the Amy Winehouse documentary uh, not long ago. You've seen that, right, Amy? Yeah. I and, Amy. and they talk about how, man, like her headspace, she needed the reset, man, probably in the way that, you know, Dave needed to take a reset, you know, but then the people around Amy were, it was like what you said, like that was their cash cow. I feel like they didn't want her to have that rest. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, first time I met Amy Winehouse was outside of Deal Real in London, you mm. know? And I will always be a fan. I will always be forever saddened that 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 she was not able to figure it out. You know? Do you feel like um, there's some truth to what I just said, though? Because well, no, that's... I'm going to say no. I'm going to. Oh, you. we're getting there. Okay. We're getting right there. Yeah. The thing that we have to remember is that it's difficult to have someone represent you that needs you to make an income for them to survive. And to your earlier question about when Y'all So Stupid got dropped and what I had to figure out, 
which I don't know if I answer, but I'm going to answer with this because it comes kind of full circle, even with Dave, with Amy. It's like, I learned early on when I was 19, 20 years old, at that moment, I needed to be able to have an income that was solely based on my talents, not based on someone else's talents, because that would lead me to making decisions on their behalf to pay my bills or pushing them into making decisions that were not beneficial for them, that may solely be beneficial to me wanting to be able to survive. Completely. And so I never wanted to be there. So I figured it out. I had figured out that this myself was a commodity, that there is something here that I can get paid for and that I should be getting paid for outside of De La Soul, outside of Most Def, Kwali, Reese, Little John, David Banner, Vince Staples, Dave Chappelle. I need to have a brand. Blacksmith has to be something that someone's willing to pay me for because of I'm, I'm credible, I'm a creative, I'm, I'm reliable. I'm all these things that my clients believe in. I have to find a way to build this so it's structured and functional. And I was able to do that. And so I warn people, I warn them, always look around you. And if your persons that you're working with, the persons or person that you're working with need, completely need, not want, but needs your income to survive, what happens when you don't want to do this anymore? What happens when you want to take a break? What happens to that person? It's a bad position to put yourself in. Your job is to advise on what's best for the client. And if you're in that setup, you can't possibly advise, right? On what's best for the Listen. client because you're too much in that equation, Corey. Great point right now. So October, 2008 was the first time in my career where I was on top on top. And I remember the recession hit and a client of mine needed money. And it gave me a complete understanding of how I needed to view things going forward. And it became one of my mantras that my job became making sure that my clients had a great Christmas. So that October came, I was gonna book a tour, tour didn't work because of the recession. There was no money, like people weren't putting the type of offers I was used to on the table. And that December came and that person needed money. They didn't have money. for, And it was a very painstaking moment for me. And so I remember I found some way to get some money. And I remember maybe lending some money, like, you know what I mean? Just to make sure, because I had saved my money nicely. And I also didn't have many responsibilities outside of, I mean, 2008, I don't remember how old I am, but I'm single. You know what I mean? Maybe I got a girlfriend at that point in time. I got my little brownstone, like, but I'm buying sneakers. You know what I'm saying? Like my, 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 my sole thing is sneakers and taking trips to Japan and, and nothing's pulling from me. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. I don't have a child. My life was a little bit different than, than this individual. And so the first two quarters, I would bust my ass. I would work really hard so that by third and fourth quarter, I had enough things going that if they were slow, I had made the clients enough money. So that became my, my thing. So then fast forward to the pandemic. And, you know, now I have a way larger staff, let's just say, right? And I look at March and it hits and, you know, we got the stay at home order and immediately I click into that mode of, I got to flip this stuff and make sure whatever's going to happen, if stuff's touring going away, 
that I'm able to make this thing work. And so I spent the first March and April, I spent solely looking at the things that revenue streams I had, figuring out, figuring out what I could extract from each revenue stream that was still existing, contacting as many business like relationships I had, see what they were working on, what their deals were looking like, what I could toss at them, throw across the wall that would stick. Because it quickly in my mind, I was like, oh, this could go into the summer. And that's a real touring part. Not even thinking it was going to go until a full three. None of us did. Days. Yeah, of no, course right? not. Yeah. But I also knew I had to keep my staff employed. And I can do the math quickly and say, okay, this is how much we have coming in right now. If this goes away, this tour is not going to happen right now. This thing I was planning on doing in the summer in New York is not going to happen. This is going to go. So I'm like, oh, so I started when people were talking about Netflix and chill. It was like, I don't have that time. Mm. There's no Netflix and chilling for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if anything, because I need to make sure that every last employee of mine is paid in full. I cannot put them in a position to ask them to take a reduced salary because I felt like that would be damning. I think it would be a distraction for someone to have to take a pay cut, you know what I mean, during this period of time when I really need them to actually produce more. I need them to be that much more on point. So I started pulling from my own resources to make sure that they were whole. And so that's the thing, you see what I'm saying? Like you gotta keep, you gotta keep yourself in a position to hustle. You know what I mean? Like, mm. and, and, and pivot, you got to pivot really, really quickly to make sense of it all. Cause I can't also have my clients have another, I have a bad Christmas. So already March, I'm thinking about what's Vince's December going to look like? What's Jay Versace's December going to look like? What's, you know, I'm thinking about all the kids because like, it's important. You see what I'm saying? Like, and, and I, did I have I done enough to make sure that they can coast the year. It might be you know, like, where, where are we? So I have a conversation with all the accountants. I'm in that conversation, knowing where my priorities are. Like, who do I need to make sure I got right now? I got to cut some deals here. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to move. Like, that's just how I function. You're trying to do the right thing by your people, which is super, you know, that's, well, that's I have to, yeah. but the flip side is if, if I was, if I was so messed up in the game that I had to solely concentrate on me how could I do right by them? How could I, you see what I'm saying? That's the whole point. How, if, if I had to be like, oh my God, my, my lights, you know what I mean? Or, or hey, can, can my daughters, like how, if I can't afford to take care of the things that are in my life properly or make sacrifices that I can deal with, then I'm going to position my artist in a place of failure because I can't concentrate properly on them. Completely, completely. And, and everything you everything you shared right now, which is super admirable and dope, and I love it. It reminds me, remember when you made the, the Morehouse commencement speech, they said you passed on like the speaking fee and like the airfare. And I was like, man, I just made a mental note of that. I was like, man, this dude's, this dude's great. And it reminds me of, and it ties to what you just shared about how you handled your employees, you know, during the pandemic. Russell Simmons says, a good giver is a good getter. Have you heard him say that before? No, mm-hmm. I haven't heard that one, but I believe you have to give to receive. Mm. Let's, let's go more into that because I feel like a lot of people, oh, you got to look out for number one or, you know, they, they have that type of attitude. So you think that they're ruining their long money for their short money. You can't be a taker. 
taking, taking, taking doesn't, there are people who take, and I'm sure it looks like they're on top, but my peace of mind, I, I, I'm speaking in a very self-centered, selfish manner in the sense of I'm only speaking about what I know for me, that my happiness comes from calm. I need calm in my life. And I don't want to have to feel like I'm stepping on someone or, you know, making someone else uncomfortable. Hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure the truth makes people uncomfortable at times, but I'm okay with that. You see what I'm saying? I'm okay with the truth. That's the, that's the New York in you, because I feel like yeah, New Yorkers yeah. are very blunt. You know what I mean? Yeah, the truth is what it is, right? And I can be wrong. You know, of course, the way, of course you can be wrong. But when it comes to that statement of Russell, yeah, like I believe in giving because I, I think it's my, my duty to, you know, like, you know, being good when we do the give backs, you know, it's like, I think it's my duty to put money towards those things where we donate to, you know, women's shelters and, and homeless shelters and, and feeding families that are in need. Pandemic, think of it this way. If you felt some pain or a struggle at any point in time, what does the person who's not as well off as we are, what are they feeling? Like, just be a human being. You see what I'm saying? Think about others because someone thought about us. Nobody got here by themselves. I don't like working with people. Well, not only say like, I will never, I will never work with someone who says I, 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 because there is no I. Hmm. That's bullshit. There's hmm. a we. No one got here by themselves. Not oh, me, man. Amen. Not Dave, not, not Vince. Not, none of us got here by ourselves. Somebody participated in some form and some fashion for us to be here we are. For our confidence, for, for our knowledge, for our bravado, whatever it is, it got us to the point where we were believable. And then we, we, we worked hard, but someone, our mothers, our fathers, someone instilled something in us to get us here. One of my favorite sayings, I think you'll like this, is, you know, illness begins with the letter I and wellness begins with we. And I thought that I, shit was so dope. I'm rocking with that. I'm all about we, man. And the thing that we have to learn in, in the taking and giving thing that you bring, that you brought up is that you have to know what your shortcomings are. And I think we forget that in life. And I know through time, I've figured out what, there's not a job in my company that I won't or cannot do. Mm. But there are jobs that other people clearly can do better. Yeah. And so, so recognizing that was a big moment for me where it's like, okay, let me go hire people who can do these things. You got to minimize the ego in those cases. And I've had on a lot of cool people on the pod. I, I don't know if you know, you know, Sean Livingston, the basketball player that had that like mm -hmm. terrible knee injury, you yeah. know, I had him on and he was talking about, you got to have, be low to the earth. You know, I remember mm -hmm. that, like no ego, yeah. another guy, mm -hmm. Jeff Bass. I don't know if you know him produced like lose yourself for Eminem. There's a couple of mm -hmm. people that came on. that was like super harping on, you know, forget your ego. Yeah. You should be able to sweep the floors. If you have a company, you should be able to sweep the floors. Like, I'll go to the storage locker and put stuff in storage. I'll clean, like, it's like, not my job, like, you know what I'm saying? But like, why not? Like, I, I'm i on sets, like, like yesterday, I, I had one of my artists, Kirk Knight, read his video shoot. I'm holding the warmer coat, you see what I'm saying? Like, wh why not? Like, it's, it's awesome, a small man. shoot, it's COVID, 
You know what I mean? I'm I'm making sure his shirt's not, you know, like there's no dust in his hair. Like, like, like whatever. Like, why would it be beyond? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I just don't get the concept of wanting to pretend to be regal. But you know a lot of people, man. Again, you don't have to name names here, but you know people in the entertainment space with huge egos too, I'm sure, right? And mm-hmm. and it's like, I guess they could see success for a run. Does it come down to a hap? Is it a happiness issue? Like an inner happiness with those people or what? That's faux. So here's the thing. Um, happiness is a choice, not a destination. Right? I like that. So you're not, you're, you're not looking for happiness. You're not searching for it. You choose to be happy. So when you're talking about people who are purchasing things or fronting on people or, you know, I, you know, I'm with my friends. So I'm happy like that. That's no, your happiness is inside of you. You know, you can share it with other people. You know, you can share that positive energy that, you know, rings bells, but ego has nothing to do with happiness. And so the people that do operate that way in the entertainment space, do you make it a point to, to attempt to avoid those people when at all possible? Because it seems very different than what you're about. And not to come across as if like, I'm, I have a small group of friends that are in the entertainment space. You know, I know a lot of people in the entertainment space, but friends, yeah, small group. I choose my friendships really, really carefully as I gotten older. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't want certain energy in my life. I just don't want it. And I don't want, I don't want people who argue in my life or who can't be uh, detailed oriented or who can't be problem solving oriented. I, I need people who, who don't dwell on negative things. I can't have that in my life. I, I can't. It's contagious, so. right? It brings your vibe down. There's no way to, you know what I mean? There's no way to not have that happen. It's like, you know, standing next to somebody with like measles or something. It's like, no. you're going to get the shit. So I think, yeah, I think I learned as I got older too, Corey, you got to really be mindful of, of who you let in and you got to make difficult choices sometimes, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to ever be that dude, Joe. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going, I mean, not at this point in my life. I'm, I can say never, you know, say never say never, but I'm never going to be on some negative shit or some like, like, yeah, you know, like, because I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I've, whether it's just my own way of coping with life. I don't know what's, but, but I'm convinced and I've convinced myself that everything happens to me with reason. I'm sure of it. So (laughs) there's nothing negative that is going to come my way per se. It's for me. You see what I'm saying? Like, Mm. this is for my journey. Like, so I, I embrace it all. I feel like with with your path, Corey, man, you've definitely, I feel like you've had some angels on your side, man. I feel like you know, they, they've, been, they've been guiding you. I definitely want this to be a takeaway from the podcast for people, from people that are in that place that let's say they feel their talent, they know they got something and it's like taking longer than they would hope. Do you have any advice directly to those people right now? It's going to come in when it's supposed to come. You see, like, like I remember chasing money and I developed two ulcers and I was young. I, was, I, was, I wasn't even 20, I was about to be 21 and I had two, I had two bleeding ulcers. And, um, and it was because of stress and me trying my hardest to make a million dollars. That was my goal, yo. 
one to three million dollars. I was like, can I figure out how to make one to three million dollars before I'm 21? And I had friends that had made millions and I was like, I'm going to make a million. You know what I mean? Like I was chasing money and not trying to be a, the best, you know, manager or creative I could be. And when I stopped chasing the money because I was making myself sick and overthinking things, I'm really analytical. I was just way overthinking it. Yeah. As if, as if the number meant that I was actually successful and it didn't. You know, but just I had I had fuck, I had fucked myself in the head. Like I was delusional. Bro, you're pretty young there, though, man. Look, cut yourself a little slack, Corey. I feel I feel like I was, you're being hard on I, yourself. But I was delusional. I was I was delusional about you know Dallas because Dallas Austin was my friend and Dallas was worth so much money and I was just like, oh, I could figure this out. Like you know what I mean? And it's like, and I didn't understand it and I got made myself sick. But then the crazy thing is when I stopped thinking about the money. I mean, zero thought about, no more thought about the money on that level. It came. There's the takeaway, bro. There's the takeaway. When I I didn't think about the money and I thought about, yo, this is a dope idea. Let's just bring it to light. And I had my little notebook and writing down these ideas. and, And then the things just fell into place because I was putting the energy where it needed to be. And that's why I've always separated art and commerce. And I think the art has to lead the commerce. Like a creative can make money. Money can't make a creative. It just doesn't work that way. Bars. <laughs> Bars, you know? Corey. That's great, dude. Yeah. I've managed artists in my career and we've had like $500,000 for a video shoot and $50,000 for a video shoot, Corey. And guess which video came out better? For 5000 because you had to be creative, bro. Yeah, exactly. Mean? I was like, no yo. Point. Yeah, like, listen, I, I I hate the fact when I when I try to shoot a video or something and someone's like, and I, it's a great idea, and they're like, oh, this is going to cost 200 grand. And I'm like, you're telling me there's no way we can do this for under 200 grand? And people are like, no. And I'm like, I'm sure we can, because this concept, if I gave it to, you know, John Smith over here, who has no money, told me, here's a camera, here's some talent, let's go make something dope. He's going to come up with something dope because he's like, this is my opportunity. So I want to, I want to wind it down with one, one last thing, Corey, you know, again, something else I heard you share out there as well, which is the music business can be uh, kind of a slimy place. If you remember saying, remember saying that um, mm-hmm. you, you put that out there. So if you're, if you're built in integrity, which, you know, a lot of us are out there and you're trying to operate in that space, what would be a takeaway? for those people that are trying to keep their integrity and do the right thing in a, in a business that has a lot of people who aren't in their integrity, who will stab you in the back in a, in a heartbeat. Well, the first bit of advice, like one of the first bits of advice I got from a manager when I started, when I said I was going to be a manager, um, I was in Atlanta and he's an older manager. Uh, he was managing some, some pretty well to do art clients. And, um, he told me, you know, artists can't handle the truth. You have to find a way to, you know, explain it to them or water it down. Something like, and immediately what stuck in my head was he was asking me to lie. Mm. Right? Mm. I was like, like, he was asking me to lie. And I was just like, huh. And I thought to myself at that moment after that meeting, wow, if I want this to be my career path, I'm going to be a horrible manager because I'm a horrible liar. Like you can read it on my face when I'm lying. Like, it's just like, I'm bad. And so I had the revelation and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to tell them the truth and see how it works. Like, I'm just going to be the opposite of that and see what happens. Like there's gotta be people who want to hear the truth. 
And that's what it is. So I've always been counterculture to whatever the slimy, like greasy bullshit in the industry is. Like I'm not, I'm not here stealing from nobody. I want every person that I work with to know everything that I know. I want them to be able to see and understand beyond me. Because if I'm supposed to be a great manager, a great business partner, a great producer, and I leave you in a world where you don't understand or can't fend for yourself, then I sucked at my job because I'm not promised tomorrow. And so to take it on as in some arrogant way that all the secrets need to stay with me. And if I die, leave that person that I supposedly said I care about to have to go find another version of me without the proper equipment or to be well-equipped to understand it and, and to discern like and through the, you know, who's who and what's what, or even better yet, be able to say, listen, I don't want another Corey in my life. I'm going to now be Corey for my life. You know what I mean? Like how, like, what are you doing? So I, I, I really do tell people what it is. I sit with my artists, I sit with my clients, I sit with my business partners, I sit with my friends, and I speak literally what I'm thinking to them. I tell them who's who, I tell them about relationships. I tell them even things that I think that they do that I don't agree with. I let them know. You know, this is how I think you should walk in the room or this is how I think you should handle this scenario. Or, you know what, I wouldn't say that, you know, like I, I do, I say these things. People will tell you who they are if you just listen. They're going to let you know what they're, who they are and what they're about if Absolutely. you are quiet enough just to listen. Human nature is, it's just that way. Motherfuckers will tell you that they're going to be a robber because that's who they are. They're going to tell you they're sleazy because that's who they are. They're going to tell you they're nice because that's who they are. That's, they're going to say it. There's something in that conversation. If you just listen, they're telling you. So, so the thing is to pay attention and be prepared for being in business with the people who say who they are, who they are. And I'm going to keep it all the way real. Sometimes people, artists, let's say they're so desperate because they want some breakthrough to happen that they will actually deny themselves what their intuition is telling them. You know what I mean? They'll block out. They'll be like, oh, like I noticed that was, that was weird. Right. But then they'll block that shit out and, and rationalize that shit. You know what I mean? Because the vast majority that of them do that. That's majority do because this industry, for the most part, all of these industries are set up to take from them and not really let and not let them really grow. They're 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 looked at as fuel to a machine versus people treating them as, hey, let me build a, a machine for you that you can also fuel. Completely. They're viewed as just commerce that people forget their people and they're viewed as just commerce. Like they're like a damn office lamp or something. You know what I mean? I'm no, man, these are you, people with like families and, you know, yeah. They're, they're looked Real at shit. as gas to a car instead of saying, hey, let me build you a car that you can gas and drive around and we can own this car together or whatever. They suck them dry to keep this machine going. And then when it's not working, they're like, oh man, it's not working. Or they're off to the new fuel. And it's deuces. Like, they're like, deuces, yeah, they right? They don't, yes. they don't care about them. And no. that part is not something that I do. Like I really only work with people who I like and care about. I don't have a relationship with anyone that's not personal as well as business. I don't, I don't really, as far as my clients and stuff. Though, and I, have and you so kept much, it that so, way from day one? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's something in my DNA that didn't allow me just to work with someone because I saw a check. It was something in my head that said, 
well, what happens when that check runs out and then this person's in my life? Like, what do I, how do I, you know, like, and, and I don't want to hang out with them. Like, and I don't want to be like, what was that? What does that look like when, you know, so-and-so's around you and you don't, you never really liked them. You weren't really friends. And then money's goes away. Like it's, I didn't want to be part of that. Completely. I felt like I could always make money with my friends or we could always find ways to be creative because the energy would be right. I live and breathe these guys in a big way. You run business really wholesome, and I appreciate that shit. Uh, I really do. And um, no keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you uh, on socials at all or, or what? Oh, uh, well, social is C Blacksmith. The C B L A C K S M I T H. That's everything. C Blacksmith. Amazing. Well, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for blessing us. And we'll see you soon. Thank you so much again for tuning in to today's episode. It really means the world to me. If you heard anything relatable that created new awareness for you, please visit our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or review. This helps build our audience. Please comment, like, and share this episode out with your family, friends, coworkers, or anyone who you feel would benefit from the messages shared in today's episode. I'm really, really grateful for your help in spreading these messages of hope and wisdom. The world is in such great need right now, and your support helps carry the message onward to others who need it. Also, please consider becoming a monthly financial contributor to the podcast. You can do so by visiting connectionismagic.com and clicking on the Patreon link. Patreon is a third-party platform which helps support creators in exchange for exclusive content and offers. You'll be able to get discounted merchandise like comfy hoodies, t-shirts, as well as retreat discounts where we'll have special guest speakers and group activities to connect you with like-minded community members. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, please stay connected.